2013, the North American retail chain Target was breached. Hundreds of thousands of credit cards were leaked. At that time, there were a lot of data breaches. This one was unusual because the Target network was breached through a third-party HVAC vendor's credentials. Okay, so the network appropriately segmented. They had a flat network, making it easier for the attackers to gain access to the credit card processing area. But this concept of using a smart building, of remote access through the HVAC system designed to reduce the heating and cooling expenses at night while maximizing them during the day across thousands of physical locations, that was interesting. This hasn't been repeated since, which surprises me. We've had breaches like SolarWinds, like Equifax, Marriott, and Capital One, but these were caused by credentials within the software systems used by the enterprises. We haven't seen someone using a flaw in the elevator system to pivot to the data part of the enterprise. That might be changing. Operational technology is getting smarter, more connected. The National Science Foundation defines the term cyber-physical as the integration of sensing, computation, control, and networking into physical objects and infrastructure, connecting them to the internet and to each other. And that's exactly what's happening. Add to that the fact that we have a lot of chips in our laptops, in our homes, and in our businesses that have been created in countries such as China. A flaw in a chip could be the access one needs to steal data if not just shut down an assembly line or hold up production of a vital resource like power or water. This is a story of how we need to secure our supply chains in the cyber-physical world today. If we don't want to become the headlines, we'll read about tomorrow. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. Hi, I'm Josh Salmonson, and I am TELUS Corporation's Senior Vice President. Uh, I'm responsible for uh, all technology solutions, uh, classified development, integration, and innovation, and I run a lot of our national security projects. What's interesting is that this may be a company that you've not heard of, yet it's been around for a long time in the security space. Sure, TELUS is a 50-year-old company. Um, we've been in, in the national security space um, in a very large way for over 30 years. It's not really talked about, but we've been a leader in GRC. On the high-side classified networks, we've allowed and facilitated all of the cloud providers to get into the government clouds. And we've also got a very nice history around secure communications. We deployed all the Wi-Fi for the Air Force, um, and now we're working on applying some of the great lessons that we've had into new areas in cyber um, so that we have an end-to-end -end capability from the development side all the way through to um, delivery um, across secure networks and across secure platforms. Uh, we just got into the CSFC program at NSA, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be putting forward some really interesting tech coming out of that. So software security has been around for over 25 years, and a lot of the companies that you see at conferences like RSAC and Black Hat are those. What you don't see are a lot of device security companies. 
How do you get device security, which has been around a lot longer? How do you start to get that focus in the industry? I, I think part of that's going to become pressure back on the industry, and we're seeing a little of that in the geopolitics of what's going on in the world right this minute. I mean, you know, I saw a video this week of the new chip plants um, in the Midwest starting to, you know, take shape. I wouldn't say they're coming online because I didn't even see a four yet, but uh, you know, they, they're getting coverage because a lot of the the things that we rely on, we don't make. And as long as we don't make them, there's, there's a significant in us in the supply chain. And so hardware is, a, is one of those double-edged swords that we can't sell it cheaply enough if we can't produce it at scale. So we look to other providers for that, and there are lots and lots of potential threats in the supply chain. So if companies were to build truly secure hardware, the price points would be up, and the question is, what is their what is their commercial viability? So uh, we've been trying to hedge that bet for a long time with making software secure. Uh, but I think what we're finding is that our adversaries are pretty good at the same things we're pretty good at. And uh, there's a lot of problems with um, low-cost hardware that we didn't anticipate. Those unintended consequences are, are catching us all uh, in a bad way these days. Hardware chips in particular are persnickety in, in the sense that you cast a chip and if you happen to misconfigure it in that process, maybe it still goes into devices all over the place. Then you're somewhat limited in what you can do to rip that chip out and put in a new one or send out an OTA. I mean, most organizations are still struggling with IT maturity level. You add cyber to that and it becomes very problematic. I, I think... Um, I felt like we were making some significant progress. I was very disappointed with the way the SEC ruling came out um, because they took a lot of the teeth out of the support that the CEOs and the CISOs need to be able to push harder for things like this. Um, you know, the, the, the board's a little bit more insulated than I think they should be. I think they need to step up and take a little bit from all these responsibility. It would have been nice to see um, senior cyber and technical leads on the boards the same way we've had to put financial expertise on boards with Sarbanes Oxley. It's coming, but it's it's going to take a little bit longer. I think the lobbyists were a little bit scared of what could happen if they push too hard. Um, people's different agendas get get impacted, and then you know you don't make the raise you were expecting. So, uh, like I said, geopolitics plays a huge part of this. Getting secure hardware is not impossible, but by the way that we build things with a very large, diverse supply chain, and there's not one manufacturer of a total solution anymore, it's very difficult to know where all of those pieces of parts and millions of transistors are coming from. There's a need not just for building chips in the United States, but maybe a new paradigm on how we even construct these chips. Like, we have TPMs and various other strategies, but maybe something new is needed here. I think as long as we have these published standards, um, I think open source is fantastic because it does provide a way to fix problems much quicker. It also provides a way um, to give an adversary a much longer advantage with these older architectures, right? That um, is, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, we talked about you know, critical infrastructure. Uh, critical infrastructure is critical because it's all aging and it's all in usually unregulated or in regulated industries where they can't just always afford to put in the next greatest thing like enterprises and, and enterprise IT can do. And even enterprise IT doesn't do it like they used to do. Right. My laptops are going into four and five years now. 
Before we started talking, Josh and I spoke about how we both expected the Internet of Things and OT to be a bit more prominent 10 years ago. Well, there's been a uh, confluence of events. Um, the first big wave for me was cloud, right? And um, cloud came in at the same time that, that Agile hit and that virtualization is starting to go just from the iOS to the network and to the, into the, uh, and into the infrastructure a little bit more. When those things happened, right, that gave the world an accelerator that they didn't have before. You could now deliver things at speed and scale that were impossible before because you didn't have to wait for the supply chain to catch up with your ambition. Um, I think in the IoT space, the comms had to come in, the ability to, to manufacture quality into it. And I think we've learned a lot. Some of the first-generation stuff, we see it all the time on the news. You, you know, people get mortified when their when their nanny cams are, you know, showing up in other people's houses. You know, and, and even when it's benign like that, when the first time somebody talks to you through that speaker and you're not expecting it, or your kid gets scared because somebody's talking to them, it's a frightening experience. And we we made to make life easier for people. We've opened up Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I had I counted. Um, it's close to 71 devices in my house that could, were internet enabled. Uh, and I said, well, why do I want my, my refrigerator and my dishwasher on the internet? I have no need for that. So, you know, it, it, there needs to be some, some help for the average person to figure out what's a good idea and what's not a good idea. And, and I, I think everybody's kind of had that experience where they were talking about something in a conversation. And the next time they opened up their browser, they were bombarded with ads for it. Um, that's one of the side effects, one of the unintended consequences of having that much ubiquitous technology interface in your house. Now, when it's public safety systems, everybody's all for it. Um, but what we're going to start to see is um, disruptors, either um, just regional actors that aren't really trying to hurt anybody, but they're just disrupting systems. Disruptors. This is the chaos theory that you don't have to exfiltrate. You don't have to master something. You just have to gum up the works so that everything slows down. If you're a nation state and you're wanting to take over, say, a larger, more sophisticated country, all you have to do is simply strategically shut down their critical infrastructure. Unfortunately, often you don't need an elite band of criminal hackers to do so. We've seen pieces and parts of this all across the critical infrastructure sectors, but it's going to become more pervasive because everybody's more and more connected. And I was fascinated yesterday at breakfast. Um, actually, I don't post a lot on LinkedIn, but I, I did post in the breakfast I was in. They were actually talking about electronic warfare and cyber affecting everything. So, you know, when you're in the IoT um, space, everything's a wireless broadcasting device. And because of that, electronic warfare jamming and, and signal strength boosters and, and other things that can cause the same kind of effects we would see with cyber on the wire, you're going to see on, and on networks now. And uh, people aren't ready for that. You know, it's, we get almost down to the Lord of the Flies if the Internet's out for like more than 90 minutes in most households these days. Josh mentioned there are like 71 devices in his home and probably the same number in your own home. That's kind of accepted today. I see that in some ways this is a testament to the fact that we haven't had major crises with these devices yet. 
how do we navigate putting better security in without having a big black swan event? Um, security's always hard because security's always got a cost to it. So a family that just bought a brand new TV that they can talk to to get the channel change isn't probably thinking about um, the other 50 or $60 in security they may need to apply to their router um, uh, and trust somebody else to do a good job of managing it. I mean, that whole space is largely unprotected. And most, most people are um, immune to it. They just don't realize it could affect them until it does. I don't think I have a good answer for that question, right? I mean, it's one of those things I've worried about for a long time, but it, it's a little further down the worry bucket and just because I know my, you know, in our, our house, we can live without the internet. Nobody wants to, but we can. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot more people in cyber like me that are kind of wishing for that day when we were, we were all a little bit more disconnected than we are now. Flipping that around, what about smart buildings? People don't think of those as being IoT and OT-based. And yet, the elevator, the escalator, and all of those things, they're IoT and OT devices. That's the biggest part of ICS data that you know, has, come, has, has taken a hit because of the enterprise IT view of the world, right? Um, IT systems are designed for resilience and reliability and are always supposed to be on and up, right? And five, nine, six, nine type systems. Um, Safety systems are designed for safety, right? And there's a huge difference. You, you don't want your power grid to come back up if it falls down because there might actually be somebody laying on a power line that shorted it out. Um, if you turn the power back on before they get rescued, you might kill them if they aren't dead already. So uh, you know, when it comes to those systems and buildings, people took a lot of that for granted. And I, you know, even though it's now aging, you look back at the target hack, it, it wasn't that um, they hacked the system through a normal mechanism. They came into the HVAC system, and in doing so, they taught the rest of the world, oh, crap, we have now, we now got a problem because to save money, we didn't want to have to send people out. We put a, a Wi-Fi device or a MiFi device into those closets, and we could reach out and touch it, but we weren't using VPNs, and we weren't using all that other stuff. People just found it and then found a way in. Uh, and if you're not looking at that, those back doors, they're, they're probably already exploiting them. Seems like everybody points to the target breach. And, well, so do I. I did a panel uh, a couple of months ago with, with one of the team leads that had kind of had to work through that. It's like everybody asks about the breach and, oh, it's kind of the thing you guys have on your history, but you guys recovered well, Frank, versus some folks that have never come back. Specifics aside, it seems like that attack vector could be used elsewhere. And yet, in the years since, it hasn't. I think it depends on the adversary, right? I, I think we, we have we have two um, significant problems these days, and that uh, on the criminal side of cyber, uh, the the criminals professionalized, right? So you get these syndicates that where you can you can get someone that can figure out how to get access in a region to anything, whether it's compromising people or compromising a company. And then you bring in an organization who can provide the infrastructure to provide the ransom, you provide the exploits to do all those other pieces, and they're working together. Um, and the really smart national security teams from other countries that are adversaries are now joining with them so they can hide behind the criminal activity. Sometimes they're using it to fund themselves, sometimes they are the criminal activity, and that's just an offshoot of what they had to do. People, it's expensive to do a lot of the things that we do in cyber. So um, 
it's hard to determine sometimes what the appropriate response is if you even see it, right? Is it something that, that we we just need to shut off or is it something that we need to go back and smack them and back the part as they smacked us? And that's that attribution piece has always been very difficult. Attribution comes up a lot when talking about strike back. You have to be absolutely certain who targeted your system. And over the internet, that's not always the case. What with proxies and various cutouts along the way, there's always some plausible deniability. So to come back to your question, how do we, you know, how do we prevent that? I don't think we know the extent that we've been compromised. And I think our, our adversaries, both on the intelligence side and on the criminal side, are kind of picking and choosing their spots for when they want to hit things they've already pre-compromised. Pre-compromised. Let's hold on to that for a moment. That means the router, the networking equipment, the laptops, the phone being used, well, they're all compromised. Often because of one chip, some backdoor in the firmware. And that's a problem for enterprises. It's especially a problem when these devices end up in the military. There was an article I saw on LinkedIn yesterday where we're starting to see pre-compromised devices in military space. Um, because of hardware that um, wasn't fully tested or wasn't, you know, the, uh, there was so much code they couldn't get through all of it. Uh, and um, the, the finding was it wasn't for listening in and surveillance purposes anymore, it was now to disrupt. So, you know, the drone that you have providing air coverage may just fall out of the sky and then you can't figure out what just happened. And it takes a long time to go back and do the root cause to figure out, is that something we've missed? So now they've added a whole extra layer of complexity to defending, right? Because when things break down, yeah. you know what, why it broke. And uh, was it somebody something did? Was it something we did? Is it a mistake? Was it purpose? Um, all of that all of that takes a little time to figure out. Um, and as great as our technologies can be, we still fall a little short on detecting those differences in critical infrastructure. There's been some great ideas for how to do it, but they don't scale very well. I mean, there's, there's people that are monitoring the power consumption on the boards and the circuits you can see in a very small fluctuation whether there's been a, a compromise. Um, but they know when they change the microcode that there'll be a change and they can see it and then they baseline it and that's normal. That's a great idea, but it doesn't scale very well. And unfortunately, one of the companies that was doing that had a problem with their supply chain and they had a demand for their chips. So they went overseas to a plant to get them made and then nobody wanted to buy them. And it was like, you're special when you have a, a, a sticker that says, you know, made the USA trustworthy hardware. But as soon as the hardware comes into question, the reason for having it becomes in question too. So it may have cut the price from $1,500 a unit down to $700 a unit. But if you can't, if you got a warehouse full of $700 units, it might have been better to wait for the $1,500. Josh said he isn't keen on the government setting the policy around this. And yet we just had the national cybersecurity strategy call out OT and IOT. And even at Black Hat and other conferences, there are new initiatives being rolled out as well. I don't think I completely answered your question. I don't want the government to solve it. I'd love to see the industry solve that problem that we created. I, I think I don't want them to lead it. I would love to see it be public-private. But the, the issue when we lead things is it takes forever for it to get on, or, you know, enacted. Uh, look at the cybersecurity frame. I've been working with NIST on the updates to version 2 for quite a while now. 
And the big holdup was, do we put governance inside the circle or around the circle? So when it comes down to a NID like that, how about we just get the guidance out? (laughs) That really didn't change that much. The, The problem was, how do we represent this? You know, we don't want to offend certain parts of in the circle of trust here. And I'm like, well, does anybody really care if it's on the inside or the outside? And it's, it's, people are going to, there's going to be 50% of the world that love it on the inside and 50% of the world that love it on the outside. <laughs> right. And, and it's, you're not going to accommodate everybody. We could have gotten this out a couple of months ago. So, um, I, I, I find things like that. They're just, we know we have to think three things, but boiling the ocean. If Agile has taught us anything, it's fail fast and move, move quick to recover. Right. Uh, and we don't seem to be that when it comes to policy and legislation at all. The initiatives that I'm seeing, particularly from CISA and other departments in the U.S. government, are not necessarily prescriptive, but frameworks. It's like, here's the guidelines. Now, you go fill in the details because you know the details better than we do. Is that Good. Organizations, I think it's great, but I think in the in the real world, the number of mature organizations, even if you look across government, there's a lot of folks that struggle with what where their real maturity is. And you know, I I love how much this has come out, and especially all the joint announcements, Bureau and and NSA, when they come out together, and and even with some of our Five Eyes partners, when they come out together, it's a pretty powerful statement. Um, and it, it really probably took a lot of effort to get them to that point where they're like, we need to tell everybody, right? Um, it's great when they do it, but I, I think what's happening is we're going to get into this area of paralysis because of too many frameworks. There's, there's too many, you know, we're, Agile and DevSecOps has been a beautiful thing because it's taken all these disparate teams that never work together and always pointed the fingers to each other. You know, and, and I know this is not camera, but DevOps was always one of those things where, you know, working in an ops group, it's the database, it's the network, it's the system, it's the developers. DevOps made a go, it's us, <laughs> right? Um, they're really, and, and, and that really changed a lot of dynamics, right? And um, when DevSecOps, when we added security to the table, um, it made some people feel like they were slowing down, but the quality kept improving, right? And it was a natural way to measure quality, um, almost like applying calculus to development. We're going to take smaller bites. We're going to, if we make a mistake, it's not as critical. We can go back, uh, you know, a couple days or a week, and we don't have to go back a, a quarter. And we don't have to spend the next two weeks fixing the update. I mean, uh, it seems to just be a lot better way to do it. Um, and it's still hard for people to accept. It, it, in government, for sure, the complication is contracts are written for the old way of doing business and they haven't adapted to agile um there's a few agencies that have but by and large it's difficult um but when you start to take all the capabilities and technology that exists today and use things like apis to bring them together where i'm a little soft on some of my thinking here is that the api security isn't as great as it could be but there are some folks that are working hard on that once that really strengthens then all of the information can come together in a way that's useful for the different parts. Um, they can see the parts that are relevant to them that intersect with other organizational elements, and that makes everybody better informed because it allows an architect to sit back now with all of his subcontractors, whether it's the database folks and the network folks and the security folks and the system owners, and they can all sit there, see the plan from their perspective, and go, now I understand why these controls are important, or now I understand why we have this mitigation. Um, and now I understand why all of these data security 
policies and frameworks exist is because all of us together is a, you know, it's the keys to the kingdom to our business or our mission. And if we aren't careful, everybody's going to see the holy grail of what we built. And that's kind of our secret sauce, right? We don't want that to get out there. In some cases they do, but um, they don't want that message modified, right? We still have to get into the, the basics of securing. Is it confidential? Is it, is it what we thought it is? And has it been, has it been changed at all? Uh, and, and availability and back to the critical infrastructure piece, that's the thing everybody's scared about, right? You know, the confidentiality and the integrity is, is one thing. Like the availability, when that goes away, um, everybody's all of a sudden pointing fingers again. And, uh, and, and it's sometimes it's nobody's fault. I'm going to go back to my earlier question and say there's been 25 years of development around software. Where's the development around device or hardware embedded security? I think we lost the, the bubble on hardware for a while. I mean, I think it's starting to come back uh, in some of the more complex systems that I've worked on. When people said, well, we're going to do Agile in this development program, I'm like, that's great. But there's a whole, the things are not going to work the same way when we have to build these integrated systems. We have to find a way to make both things work in harmony. Um, you know, there are some constructs in some of the, the larger scale Agile practices that if you really want to take an engineering view of it, you could say, well, this is the, this is the place in safe. It's called an architectural runway. I, I get into arguments all along, but I'm like, this is where we would put the hardware investment time, right? Because we can't get to the next step without this being known. And um, the developers will always argue with me. I'm like, but you can't build on it until you have it. And this stuff doesn't work in two weeks, sprints. It works in a lot longer cycles till we get it right. Uh, and that's part of the complexity. We expect a lot from hardware, and to turn the hardware around to keep up with the development of software, we have to cut corners, and um, and or we're limited to a single provider for something, and and that that becomes another point of failure down the road. They, you know, they get compromised. God help us all, right? Um, you know, the, the there's some legendary. DoD hacks where there were things that were built by large large groups of organizations and the ones that were at the top of the food chain had everything protected, but the attackers came in through the middle or the bottom and they came in through non-traditional ways, right? So the security teams would miss it. If you you come after the plans for a billion dollar aircraft through a multifunctional printer somewhere else in the world, you might get the whole thing. So what does Josh see as the path forward? I think that there's a path forward to, um, to bring it hardware uh, into DevSecOps. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I'm, I'm trying very hard to get to in our organization because we do make both you know, software and cyber physical solutions around networks. And to me, to your, your original question, we can do some things with these limited component systems where we can validate all of the different microcode, all of the different um, software loads that go into them, and to a certain extent, the components. Um, you know, if we can find a provider that can can assure us that every piece is sourced appropriately and it's all made the boards, that's great. Uh, I think it's a shared responsibility model, almost like cloud, uh, where the vendors have to step up and, and take some responsibility for the the, the, the way that they. They get their equipment assembled, um, but together, I think we can we can use um, techniques and technologies that exist today to harden up some of these solutions. So I would expect to see um, uh, a change in the environment. I mean, when you talk to purist developers, they don't like the idea of having 
a DevOps environment that keeps repos of both firmware and right. software. Um, but, but some of the places where we are now doing software uh, are finally starting to get secured like you would secure the rest of the enterprise. We don't have those days of shadow IT running the development world, right? right. Everybody on a Mac, you, you're not under the, any of the other policies and rules of the organization. You know, those days are over, um, and everybody's using common repositories, and in some cases they're working inside the common CDSNU pipeline. They have to follow the rules of engagement with the, those development practices. And if they're really good, they're actually testing their code in a couple different ways before it goes, um, you know, from unit to, to system to, to, to the, the, the final tests. Um, that's great. We need to kind of get that rigor into these systems that are more seriously um, position to be protected than uh, than others, and I think that comes down to really doing a much more a much different type of risk assessment for some of these organizations and agencies as they implement technology. It's not going to be just a straight up RMF um, evaluation anymore. Well, there's going to be a a more comprehensive red team kind of event to see where where the gaps in the security are going to be. Are they human? Are they technical? Are they um, are they are they somewhere in the middle? Is it a management failure, or you know, does finance do things that they're not supposed to? Do? The contract teams actually understand sourcing in a secure supply chain, uh, and do the PMs know what they really need to do to deliver? I think all of those things are going to become our next big challenge to solve. Um, but we've done a lot of these things faster and faster and faster. So I think Moore's law almost has an application in the way that we've gone from waterfall not that long ago. So you don't really hear people even talking about it anymore. Uh, we've made progress. I think we have to take that and apply it to hardware going forward because that's really going to be that next step of uh, assurance. Um, but it's a big gap. <laughs> I think there's going to be a natural progression for people that are clever and hand testers. So who could perform the assessments? I recorded this interview with Josh at Hacker Summer Camp 2023. We were at Black Hat in Mandalay Bay, and DEF CON was about to happen at Caesars and other hotels up the Strip. I mean, look at what we're doing here this week. You go down the street, there's going to be a whole hack of satellite contest, right? But think about that, right? From, from, from figuring out how to hack building systems and, and IT systems to now we're going, okay, there's something floating around about 20 miles, uh, 200 miles above the surface of the Earth that's not connected by anything that you can see. Um, tell me how you're going to take it down. And there's a lot of people here that can do that. Um, and now the question is, are they, they going to help us fix the flaws we find? Uh, are they vulnerability researchers? Or are they more intent on um, having a clear night sky again where you don't see satellite strings going over every five minutes? Um, I, I joke because I love those satellite strings living off the of Skylink where I live. So, <laughs> um. I think it's a bit harder to take satellites and satellite communications down. In fact, the first and second episodes of Ericode focus on Hackasat 3, which was entirely simulated using digital twins of satellites in orbit. And then again, I revisited the topic in episode 18 and 19, where I focused on Hackasat 4, which actually hacked an orbiting satellite some 200 miles above the Earth. If you're interested, you might want to check those episodes out. From those episodes, I can confidently tell you that it's a bit hard to take down a satellite that's moving around in space. It's very easy to disrupt just about anything. And the, and the challenge is, you know, if you've got enough money, 
and there are there are organizations out there that are that don't have the public's interest in mind that are very well funded um, and that uh, can use a lot of different mechanisms at their disposal uh, to achieve um, disruption if they want to or or outright chaos um, but those things are we're going to resolve them we're going to keep checking off the list it's just going to be we're going to have moments of pain and suffering i think where people realize oh we maybe become too reliant on some of that stuff uh, i hope that we don't jump the shark with ai uh, too soon we still keep some people in the loop have some good good thinking at, at times but uh uh, tech's come a long way just since the 25 years I've been doing this. So I think this brings up a point around failover and redundancy, particularly in critical infrastructure. Is that something thought of today? Are we looking at that? I, th- I, I believe that, that there's a large section of the world that really is, is moving probably away from the thought of redundancy to resiliency, right? How can you fight under duress? Um, now, watching things play out on the world stage, like Ukraine's showing the world you can do it. Um, and it's not always easy for that. And I'm, I'm certainly probably sugarcoating it. seems a lot easier from where I sit than it would be if I was there. But it's not impossible. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've tried to teach our cyber defenders for a long time how to keep operations going in a, in a reduced capability space. And there's, there's a lot of people that are learning that still set. And the big challenge for all of us is the the way we're going to onboard the next generation of folks, right? The... Uh, and that's a little scary at 58 for me. Oh, I don't really know who I'm turning the reins over to in a couple of years. Okay, and that's a whole separate conversation about the next generation. I'd like to thank Josh for coming on the show and talking about the need to secure down to the chip level our devices against a variety of different attacks. There's a lot of legacy equipment within our critical infrastructure today that needs to be either mitigated or replaced entirely. And it's good that there are people working on that problem now. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I've got some great episodes coming up, including using EDRs to attack enterprises, breaking the GitHub pipeline, and more on IoT and OT, of course. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.